Today, our culture gives honor to mothers, and certainly it is our joy to give honor to whom honor is due. And I have entitled my discourse to you, Virtues of a Godly Woman, and we will be looking at Proverbs 31 that we've read from a few minutes ago. And I can think of no better way to honor mothers than to reflect upon the virtues of a godly woman. And we see these virtues delineated in Proverbs 31. Before we look at the text, may I encourage you to think with me a moment regarding the culture in which we live. Today, our culture offers a number of competing paradigms for mothers and for women in general. And since virtually none of the modern paradigms reflects God's standard, it can be very difficult for a Christian woman to understand what is pleasing, what is honoring to the Lord. And likewise, most Christian young men are clueless, proven very often by the kind of women they choose to date and ultimately marry. Today's women are driven primarily by various priorities, and I would say the dominant priority is that of external outward appearance or beauty, as people might call it. Women are driven today by body image. They're obsessed with it in our culture. Billions are spent every year on hair and makeup, the latest fashions, tanning booths, diets, health spas, and on it goes. In fact, it is estimated that $10 billion are spent on cosmetic and plastic surgery every year in the United States. And 90% of that is spent by women. Today's woman considers it to be attractive to expose as much skin as possible, regardless of size. Not just on the beach, but wherever they can be seen by men. Sadly, even amongst many Christian young women, it seems that the rule is the more I can expose myself, the tighter, the skimpier, the better, despite God's, God's demands and commands to the contrary, to be modest in appearance. And naturally, since the focus is predominantly on the outside, to the neglect of the virtues of the heart and those things on the inside, women of our culture have become increasingly immoral. All of the statistics bear this out. Encouraged by our educational system, Encouraged by our politicians, our activist judges, certainly by Hollywood, we continue to see, for example, sexual promiscuity in teens continue to skyrocket, along with the sexually transmitted diseases, pregnancies, pornography, and other forms of wickedness. And, as we know, our teens become adults, and we look around and see the adults, and as a result... You have sex in the city and desperate housewives. In general, the modern American woman enjoys being called a feminist, an activist, 
She is described as ambitious, as sexy, seductive, independent, aggressive, materialistic, powerful, and on it goes. And all of these are terms that the world applauds. But ultimately, she is self-centered and she is self-absorbed. The modern woman today considers it okay to sleep around a bit before she gets married, to hook up, as they say, to live with several men until she finds the one that she likes, and therefore she enters into marriage with a cavalier attitude towards adultery and divorce and so on. For the most part, women today are amoral and immoral. In fact, most have the morals of an alley cat. The modern woman believes that marriage is, for the most part, a co-regency, where no one is really the head, no one is really to submit, And most women consider being a mother and a homemaker unfulfilling and even archaic. That most women today hate to cook. They prefer to eat out. After all, they don't have time to cook or to commit themselves to any domestic duties. Basically, the modern woman is married to her career. She is one that demands independence and equal rights. Many have their own bank account, and she considers herself equal to any man on most things, and even enjoys, interestingly enough, vacationing with her girlfriends even more than her family if she has one. And if she has a family, most women spend much more of their money and their resources on daycare than they give to charity. And most women today let TV and movies entertain and train their children, and they seldom read to them. Most have been abandoned to the educational system to allow that system to brainwash them to ultimately become even worse than their mother. And as she ages, she becomes unattractive, at least in her mind and certainly in the eyes of the world. And so she feels unwanted. Therefore, she has to spend more money on her makeup and her hair and cosmetic surgery and prescription drugs to somehow anesthetize the pain, and on it goes. And since her kids were raised primarily in a daycare or by Hollywood, she is a mother that is very frustrated with her children because most of them are out of control. And so what do you do with out-of-control children? Well, you put them on drugs because, after all, they've got ADHD or they are bipolar, which seems to be the new fad today. And eventually they grow up and they start the cycle all over again with even a more virulent strain of sinfulness than their mother. Bottom line, dear friends, if you study the modern day woman in our Western culture, you will find that she is basically unsubmissive. She is unaccountable. She is unhappy. She is unstable. She is unloving, unfulfilled, unpraiseworthy, unenviable, and basically ungodly. In fact, I cannot think of one woman in our popular culture, you know, as you look at television and so forth, I can't think of one woman that could be considered a godly role model for our youth. 
And yet this church is full of them. And I praise the Lord for that. Likewise, many other churches like ours around the world. And this morning, I want to contrast the virtues of the world, the ones that the world applauds versus those that God honors. And for this reason, I've asked you to turn to Proverbs. By the way, the word proverb means to be like. And what we see in Solomon's writings here and his wisdom inspired by the Spirit of God are comparisons between common concrete images and very profound truths pertaining to life's most fundamental realities. This is, you might say, God's instruction manual for us. And when you look at Proverbs, you will see as you read through it that it has much to say about women and, of course, of men. By the way, men, it will be our turn on Father's Day, so don't get too comfortable this morning. But it has much to say about women of the world. It speaks of the adulteress, for example, whose lips drip honey and who captures a man with her eyelids, but who will cause agonizing regret in that man's life. It speaks much about the harlot whose flattering lips seduces a man and leads him like an ox to the slaughter. It speaks about the contentious, quarrelsome, ill-tempered, and noisy wife, the type of woman who is forever trying to control her husband. And for this reason, the man, the text says, prefers to live on the corner of his roof where there is peace rather than to live in a house where he is henpecked. And then it speaks about the lazy woman, the rebellious woman, the wicked woman, and even the foolish woman. And there's many descriptions of this woman, but certainly she is one described as a person who fails to discipline her children. And in the end, her children bring her great shame. And we see this. This is very common in our culture. Women with and husbands, for that matter, families with child centered homes where everything revolves around little Johnny, there's no discipline. The child is defiant, throws tantrums, and the mother is absolutely clueless. She blames it on genetics. After all, the child takes after his father. And, of course, the only thing you know to do is to medicate the child. So, ultimately, what you see in Proverbs is much to say about women, much to say about family. And, finally, at the end, we have the... Description of the virtuous or the godly woman. Now, let me give you some background here before we look at the text. This is a godly Jewish woman, a godly Jewish mother who is basically a queen giving her son, who is probably very young, wise counsel. And this was obviously a very wealthy family. But as you will see, the role of the woman portrayed in this royal home in the ancient Near East is one that is completely out of character for an earthly queen. But it is completely in character for a woman who serves the Most High God. As we look at this, we see that her son is basically a young prince at the time of her instruction. And later on, he becomes king. His name is King Lemuel who, by the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, relays what his mother taught him. And this is actually God's wisdom. 
And all of this now is being relayed to us. King Lemuel is thought by some to be Solomon and his mother Bathsheba, according to ancient Jewish tradition. But quite frankly, we simply do not know who he is. Now, in verses 1 through 9, we see that she warns her young son, who, by the way, could attend or, or ascend to the, the throne at any time to be king. She warns him to be a man whose life and reign reflects the wisdom of God and is characterized by godliness. In verse 3, we see her telling him to abstain from the concubines, from the idolatrous woman, from foreign wives. In verse 4, to abstain from intoxicating drinks that would, that would cloud his judgment, for indeed drunkards should never be allowed to hold the reins of government. In verses 8 and 9, she speaks to him about being merciful to the oppressed and how important it is for him someday as king to plead the case of those who have no voice to defend the rights of the afflicted and the needy. And then she addresses the most important issue of all for a young man, namely the virtues of a godly woman. In contrast, by the way, to the immoral or the idolatrous woman of verse 3. Now, dear friends, it is fascinating that the following verses from verse 10 through 31 delineate the character and praise of a godly woman in an acrostic in Hebrew. In fact, each verse begins with another letter of the 22 letters of the Hebrew alphabet. So each verse beginning with a consecutive letter. And this, of course, was given for the purpose of memorization, underscoring the profound significance that God placed upon this particular passage of Scripture for young men. And here, young men, I would ask you especially to be attentive. For I fear that next to the glorious gospel of grace, what you are about to hear is the most important information you will ever hear in your life. Indeed, there is perhaps no greater misery for a man than to be married to an ungodly woman. Many young men over the years have asked me, what should I look for in a wife? Where do you go in the Bible? And my response is, well, you need to look for what God looks for, and we need to there go to the magnificent details in Proverbs 31. And of course, there are other passages as well. And ladies, regardless of your age, may I encourage you to hang on every word of this text and this discourse, for here you will learn God's standard for you. And if you will hear it and live it, God will rejoice and you will be blessed. In verses 10 through 31, we discover five different roles of a godly woman and each of these should manifest a variety of God-honoring virtues. Let me give them to you and then elaborate on them. First of all, we will see that she is a committed wife. Secondly, a consummate homemaker. Thirdly, a compassionate philanthropist. Fourthly, a credible teacher. And fifthly, a consecrated mother. Now, let's look what this wise Jewish mother, this queen, begins with here. And what Lemuel later rehearses as he gives us the word of God, beginning in verse 10. And we see here 
the virtues of a number one committed wife. He says an excellent wife, which could also be translated a virtuous woman who can find for her worth is far above jewels. In other words, she's saying that this kind of woman is extremely rare and therefore priceless. So she's saying, son, you must look long and hard for this kind of a woman. But when you find her, she will be invaluable. Friends, think about the analogy here. Something that is worth far more than jewels. What is the ratio of rocks to a jewel? How many rocks do you have to go through before you finally find a jewel? By the way, this is why it's so, so important for Christian families to raise their children in a godly, Bible-believing, Bible-teaching church. Because it is going to provide a much richer environment favorable for your children to find a godly mate. And while we see here in this text that this type of a woman is rare, she is nonetheless there. It's not like you can't find her. She is there somewhere and God will guide you to her. In fact, we know, according to Proverbs 19:14, that this kind of wife is said to be a gift from God. Now, I want you to notice how God begins with the inner character, not the outward beauty. Now, it's not because beauty isn't important. You know, we don't have to teach our young men to go find a wife and make sure that she doesn't howl at the moon. I mean, we all automatically a young man knows kind of what to look for. But we do have to warn them, son, look beyond the outside, look to the inside, because inner virtue is far more important. And when you find inner virtue, I would also argue that you will also find external beauty. Verse 11, the heart of her husband, she says, trusts in her and he will have no lack of gain. Now, it's important for you to understand some background here of the ancient Near East. A wife in those days was virtually a privileged servant. And in many cases in the Near East, even to this day, she is that way. A wife of this day bore children. She managed the house. She allocated food supplies. She prepared the food and processed and stored it. She served primarily as an administrator. She was also like the chief financial officer, if you will. She was also a judge. She would she would adjudicate the fights within the household between the servants and the kids and everybody else. And she also had a very important responsibility of teaching the children. And she would do this even with the young men until they came to the age of 13. And then at that age, there would be a ceremony. It's called a bar mitzvah. And uh, that's where um, it means uh, one to whom the commandments apply. And now that young man is considered that that young boy is considered to be a young man. And the father begins to take over in the training. But he is also now treated like a man. By the way, that is why we do not allow women to teach young men in this church after the age of of 13. Very important. But what would happen is she would teach this mother would teach the children up to that age and continue to teach the young ladies even into young adulthood. 
But because she was often pregnant and because she was often exhausted, husbands often pursued sexual intimacy with concubines, especially in royal families or wealthy families. And of course, this would create a mutual lack of trust and a lack of intimacies. Wives would often become jealous and sabotage various enterprises of the husband and maybe even at times kind of take some of his money, some of his valuables, use it for herself or whatever. And so it was not at all uncommon for a husband to lock up his valuables when he was away because he didn't truly trust his wife and he would just leave her enough money as an allowance to manage the household. And how sad it is today to hear husbands talk about a wife that they cannot trust for fear that she will spend money in a frivolous manner, that she will spend it selfishly. I hear of women spending money on, on um, the lottery and spending it on themselves in frivolous ways and on and on it goes. But not so with this woman. In fact, it says that the heart of her husband trusts in her and he will have no lack of gain. So in other words, this kind of a woman is one that has the trust of her husband. He never worries about his wife's integrity. He does not worry that she's going to spend him into the poor house. He has great confidence in letting her handle the finances and manage the affairs of the home. She is the oikodespotes, according to 1 Timothy 5.14. It means the ruler of the house. In fact, in Titus 2.5, Paul says that mature women are to teach younger women to love their husbands, to love their children, to be sensible, pure, and then oikorus, or workers at home. This is how this woman was. Obviously, there will be a rich intimacy in this kind of marriage where the husband trusts her and she trusts him. And as a result, you were going to see a man that is committed to the well-being and the protection and the provision for his wife, as well as causing the wife to be committed to her husband's well-being. In fact, what we see here is this kind of a woman is the key to a man's success and happiness in life. Verse 12, she does him good and not evil all the days of her life. You see, friends, this is the committed wife. And basically what she's saying is, son, find a woman that is dedicated to you, that is devoted to your success, devoted to your happiness, physically, materially, and even spiritually. It's tragic. Over the years of ministry, Nancy has told me at times she's been in meetings with women where it's kind of a sport to badmouth their husband. What a wretched thing to do. Not the virtuous woman, not the excellent wife. She's not going to do that. Even if there are problems, she's not going to air them in public because her calling and her joy in life is to love her husband. You see, this kind of a woman enters marriage with this kind of an attitude. Her whole life is committed to building up her husband, not tearing him down. And sometimes this will include confronting him on his sin. There's another sermon or two along this line. But may I remind you, for example, in Galatians 6, 1, we read that if a man is caught in any trespass, you who are spiritual, restore such a one in a spirit of gentleness. Unless you are his wife. 
No, it doesn't say that. Obviously, it applies to wives as well. But because of her deep devotion to her husband, notice in verse 23, we see the results of this committed wife. Her husband is known in the gates when he sets among the elders of the land. Now, you must understand that the gates of the ancient cities were basically like our courthouse. This would be where the elders of the mature, godly, respected men would meet to conduct the affairs of the city. And this kind of man, therefore, is a product of his committed wife. His reputation, his wisdom, his maturity are largely a fruit of his wife's devotion to him. And beloved, you must understand that an excellent wife is God's tool of refinement. And men, please hear this. She is God's tool of refinement in our life because she sharpens our conscience with the soft stone of her Christ-like character. In fact, we read in 1 Peter 3 that even husbands who are disobedient to the word may be one without a word. How? By the behavior of their wives as they observe their chaste and respectful behavior. It goes on to say that they observe the hidden person of the heart and the imperishable quality of a gentle and quiet spirit, which is precious in the sight of God. And the text even goes on to say that women of old adorned themselves with submission to their husbands. And even Sarah obeyed Abraham, the text says, calling him Lord. So this kind of woman is graciously submissive to her husband and committed to him. John Piper has well said, and I quote, at the heart of mature femininity is a freeing disposition to affirm, receive and nurture strength and leadership from worthy men in ways appropriate to a woman's differing relationships. And he also said that at the heart of mature masculinity is a sense of benevolent responsibility to lead, provide for and protect women in ways appropriate to a man's differing relationships, end quote. Well, both of these dynamics are occurring here in this marriage. And as a result, there is a vibrant synergy of godly virtues between the husband and the wife and thus much divine blessing. But not only is she a committed wife, but secondly, she is a consummate homemaker. Verse 13 She looks for wool and flax and works with her hands in delight. This tells us that she goes now into her flock and into her fields and procures the materials to make the garments for her family and the bedding and the rugs and so on for her family. And perhaps she even goes out and purchases it. it. But then we see that she has to make it into thread She has to place it upon a loom. She has to weave it into the appropriate fabric and so forth. And it's fascinating, isn't it? This is a queen giving insight to a young prince that these things are important in a woman. Begin with her commitment to you as as a wife, but then secondly, look to her as one who is a consummate homemaker. You see, there's no sitting around the house with this woman. This is not the woman that would sit around in those days and watch soap operas. And this is also not the kind of woman that can just run to pennies and buy something for the kids. 
Ladies, aren't you thankful that you don't have to go and somehow go to the field and get the raw materials, make it into thread, put it on a loom, weave it and make all the clothes for your family. But this is how it was in those days. So this woman is a worker. And I want you to see here that she's not a worker out of duty, but out of desire. It says she works with her hands in delight. She's not walking around the house saying, oh, I hate this. This is no fair. This is her joy. In verse 14, it goes on to say that she is like merchant ships. She brings her food from afar. In other words, here is a woman who is organized. She's efficient in the management of the home. And she's gladly willing to travel a great distance to find those things that will nourish her family. And again, in those days, she couldn't jump in the minivan and run down to the mall or run over to Walmart. She would have to walk or she would have to take a horse or a cart. But she was willing to do that. Now, if I can make this really practical in our modern era, this is not the kind of woman that would be comfortable in letting her family eat leftover pizza and frozen dinners. I mean, there's not going to be any fast food in this home. Uh, no sodas and all this type of stuff. She's not going to let her children turn into unhealthy, fat little porkers that, that can't hardly function and clog her husband's arteries up with all kinds of junk. I mean, this woman is committed to the diet and the care and the happiness of her family. In verse 15, it says she rises also while it is still night and gives food to her household. And portions to her maidens. My, talk about a consummate homemaker. You see, her responsibility in the ancient Near East would be that of keeping the oil lamps burning through the night, during the night, so that there would be some light for the family and also to keep the fire going for warmth and for cooking. And the, one of the ways they would do that is they would put hot coals in a pan and they would bring that out into the room and that would allow some warmth to begin to fill the room and keep the children warm. And what we see here is this is the kind of woman that would rise early and begin to prepare the meal for her family because she loved them. And therefore, they would awaken to the aroma of breakfast and be ready to begin the day. So it says that she rises also at the night and gives food to her household. And then notice it says, and portions to her handmaidens. doesn't mean that she feeds them food. The word portions in the original language refers to tasks or work or labor. So in other words, she's giving out the assignments to the servants for the day. This is an organized manager of the home. In verse 16, it says that she considers a field and buys it. From her earnings, she plants a vineyard. So this is also an enterprising, entrepreneurial type of woman. She is a shrewd businesswoman. And you say, well, where does she get her earnings? What's this deal about earnings? Well, the answer is in verse 24. Notice verse 24. She makes linen garments and sells them and supplies belts to the tradesmen. These would be sashes in particular that they would use to to basically collect all of their robes and their garments, garments and so forth. And so here we have a woman that uses her talents to earn some extra income for the home. But obviously not at the expense of her family. 
Often women who work outside the home lament over the fact that they feel they have abandoned their family. And often the family agrees. By the way, this doesn't happen all the time. But it's very important for the woman to make sure that she balances these things if she works outside the home and that she does not do this at the expense of the family. But this woman is one that balances her work with her family because, remember, she is committed, first of all, to her husband and then to her children. And what does she do with her money? Well, obviously, she saves it. And then in verse 16, it says she considers a field and buys it from her earnings. She plants a vineyard. So. A vineyard now is essential to the needs of her family and who knows what all the field. In other words, it's the idea here of of um, of purchasing something that would ultimately be used for the assets of the family. And this is the kind of woman that we have here. Verse 17 tells us more about this consummate homemaker. He says she girds herself with strength. And makes her arms strong. Now, you will remember in the Bible, the concept of girding is one that always refers to preparation. Gird up your loins. In other words, gather your robes about you. Get ready to run or to go to battle or whatever. So the girding here is preparation. And in this context, it's preparation for rigorous, serious work. That's what she is talking about. And because of the rigorous attention that she gives to her family, she is physically fit. She doesn't have to go to a gym for that. By the way, obesity was not an issue in that culture. They did not have a sedentary existence, and we all struggle with that here in our culture. Plus, their diet was very nutritional. They couldn't run down to Wendy's and drink a Coke and fries and a hamburger like I had yesterday. And you do too much of that, and you know what the result is. At least in my case, my belts begin to shrink. I don't know how that happens, but it does. But here we have someone committed to hard physical labor, and they also did a lot of walking. And even to this day in those cultures, you will see that these women are extremely physically fit. She walks even great distances to find those healthy foods and the appropriate quantities for her family. So again, she's a consummate homemaker. Parenthetically, parents, can I say something to you here at this point? Teach your daughters that the world does not revolve around them. That the world does not revolve around their happiness. If I can put it this way, if you have a demanding, self-centered, spoilt, rotten, tantrum-throwing daughter that pouts and whines when she doesn't get her way, you are basically raising a monster. And you should stop whatever you are doing in your life and commit yourself to dealing with this. See it as a cancer. It's something that needs to be completely eradicated immediately. In fact, we're told in Proverbs 22:15 that foolishness is bound up in the heart of a child. Foolishness is, I demand to have my own way. But the rod of discipline will drive it far from them. And young men, if you see a young woman who is like this, a young woman who pouts and whines when she doesn't get her way, a young woman who absolutely insists that the world orbit around her, or if you see that in her mother, 
be very, very careful. In fact, I would encourage you to run, don't walk, to get away from her. And parents, may I also encourage you to help your sons observe the young ladies that they date. Observe their families and give them insight. Give insight to your sons to make sure that they don't marry this kind of a woman. I often say that I won't throw my dog in every fight. I save him for the big ones. But let me tell you, when my kids were growing up, that was one of the big ones. There were times where as a father, I put my foot down and said, you absolutely will not date this particular person. End of discussion. And parents, you need to be that way to help your sons to make sure they don't make this mistake, to make sure they find that precious jewel. In verse 18, we go on to read that she senses that her good or her gain is good. In other words, her enterprising activities are profitable. She sees that. And it even says of her that her lamp does not go out at night. This could be a reference to someone who burns the midnight oil, that she's not a lazy person, but also perhaps that it signifies that her home flourishes because of her tireless and her prudent efforts. But what we can see is certainly this is not a lazy woman. Men, you don't want to marry a lazy woman. Husbands, if you have a lazy wife, lovingly confront her and deal with this. It's a horrible thing. The Bible speaks much, especially in Proverbs, about the slothful person and the sluggard. In fact, the sluggard, we read in Proverbs 24, is one that begs during the harvest and has nothing. And we live in a country filled with sluggards with their hands out, wanting other people to take care of them. And unfortunately, a government that is all too willing to do that. And in verse 19, we read more of her willingness to work hard. It says she stretches out her hands to the distance and her hands grasp the spindle. Now, these, of course, are instruments uh, used for spinning and making her own thread and and then weaving these threads on a loom. But again, I want you to notice the emphasis here on her dedication to the family. I mean, this is a woman who is making them clothing, making them bedding, making them rugs and whatever else they would need. This is the consummate homemaker. Verse 21, she is not afraid of the snow for her household, for all her household are clothed with scarlet. This indicates that she takes the time to even dye the winter clothes to make them into a beautiful red, burgundy type of a color. And they would do this, especially those that had a little bit more money, in order to provide garments for their family that would attract heat. And the darker the garment, the more it would attract heat. And likewise, it would make them beautiful. So again, as we see here, this kind of a woman is very rare. Now, you might think, my goodness, with all this work, I mean, this, this gal's up all the time. She's walking great distances. All of these things that she's doing, she must look like nine miles of bad road, you know. And my goodness, talk about a haggardly, like you can kind of think in your mind, this, this woman looks like, you know, the type of women that sometimes you will see right before closing down at Dollar General. And folks, this is not the case at all. As we go on to look, We see in verse 22, it says that she makes coverings for herself. Her clothing is fine linen and purple. 
Now, let me stop for a second. Remember that it began by saying that she is a woman, first of all, committed as a wife to her husband. So therefore, we know that ultimately she's going to be committed to all that would bring joy and happiness to her husband, including her looks. And that's why we see here it says she makes coverings for herself. And the word coverings is a reference to her bedding and garments of sexual intimacy. In Proverbs 7 and verse 16, we read about the harlot and how she seduces her victim. And there we have the same word. There, in a very wicked tone, we read what she says, quote, I have spread my couch with coverings, with colored linens of Egypt. I've sprinkled my bed with myrrh, aloes and cinnamon. Come, let us drink our fill of love until morning. Let us delight ourselves with caresses and so on. So what we see here is that the virtuous woman is also a romantic woman. This is a woman that is concerned about her femaleness. And she's comfortable and confident in her femaleness. She's in love with her husband. She's sensitive to her own beauty. And therefore, as we see, attentive to her bedchamber. And it says, too, that her clothing is fine linen and purple. Now, these are the fabrics and colors of beauty. These are the the, the fabrics of, of elegance and femininity. I mean, you're not going to see this woman walking around all the time in sweatshirts and sweatpants. I mean, this woman is going to look nice. Ladies, by the way, there's a reason why husbands don't shop for you at Walmart. And therefore, it might be wise for you to do the same when it comes to really trying to look nice, if you understand what I'm saying. So we see here that this woman is not at all a woman who is some terrible looking thing. She is, again, a a consummate homemaker, but she is also committed to her husband, even in her looks. Well, it doesn't stop there. Thirdly, we see that she is a compassionate philanthropist. Notice verse 20. It says she extends her hand to the poor and stretches out her hands to the needy. In the original language, it literally means that that she opens her palm. She is a giving woman. She gives liberally to the poor. Isn't it interesting? The same hand that stretches out to the distaff in verse 19 for her family, likewise stretches forth to the poor to give to them. And indeed, a truly virtuous woman will be filled with compassion. For anyone in need, and she will do all that she can to meet that need. So what we see here is that her character could be summarized in a word. She is selfless. She is a compassionate philanthropist. Fourthly, we see that she's what I would call a credible teacher. Notice verse 25. Strength and dignity are her clothing. Now, it's interesting here. The term strength is one that refers to spiritual power, godly vigor. There there is a a godly power, a godly might about this woman. And And dignity refers to something that is stately, something that is majestic, something that is transcendent. So this is a stately woman, a majestic, regal, royal type of woman. If I can put it this way, this is the kind of woman whose life And character transcends the mundane, the meaningless, the the, the trivial pursuits of most women. 
You see, this woman is clothed, the text says, in strength and dignity. And therefore, she has credibility, or in other words, the authority, the moral high ground for teaching, as we're going to see. And also it says, therefore, she smiles at the future. In other words, because of her strength and dignity, because she loves the Lord, she trusts in the sovereignty of God, has absolute confidence in all that he does in her life. She knows that he is faithful, that he will bless her and her husband, her family, and her community. Now, let me say something here. There are many women who do not smile at the future. In fact, they have great fear of the future. Moreover, many women with wrong priorities in their life, and I've experienced this over the years in counseling hundreds and hundreds of women, many of them are ruled by fear. They're afraid of virtually everything. And ultimately, what you will see is a parallel. Those women that are ruled by fear typically do not have the virtues that we're talking about here. You've seen women like this. They absolutely go into hysterics if they see a spider or a frog or a little snake or they have irrational fears about germs or about people or about places and so forth, and especially about the future. The future is something to dread. I don't know what might happen, but something bad I'm sure is going to happen. So they're filled with anxiety and fear. It's one thing to have a healthy respect for certain things, but it's something altogether different to have an hysterical panic. John MacArthur has well said, quote, those who fear the future are those who experience guilt in the present, end quote. Obviously, this is a reference to those who would fear divine chastening in their heart. But may I remind you, as Paul said in 2 Timothy 1.7, God has not given us a spirit of fear or of timidity or of cowardice, but of power and of discipline and love. So the virtuous woman here smiles at the future because her character is defined by spiritual strength. There's a transcendent dignity about her, and this makes her a credible teacher. And this is ultimately my point here. And we see this in verse 26. She opens her mouth in wisdom, and the teaching of kindness is on her tongue. Literally, in the original language, it is the law of kindness is on her tongue. Kindness is the word chesed in Hebrew. It's the Old Testament term for mercy, for loving kindness, ultimately for the grace of God. And what it's saying here is when this woman opens her mouth, the word of God flows from it. It rolls off of her tongue. You see, this is what King Lemuel is reflecting upon, even as he thinks about the words that came from his mother. We read, for example, in Proverbs 1.8, where God says, hear, my son, your father's instruction and do not forsake your mother's teaching. And this is for good reason. Lemuel should remember what his mother taught him, because as we see, she was a woman filled with strength and dignity. If I can make this real practical, this is not going to be the kind of woman that screams and curses at the refs when they don't call the game for little Johnny the way that he or she should have called it. This is not the kind of woman that is going to be out screaming and demanding equal rights and all of this kind of thing. She's not going to be out screaming um, abortion on demand. 
She's not going to be bellyaching about how that women ought to be able to teach in the church and be pastors. She's not going to be the kind of woman that gets up in people's face and lets people know exactly what she thinks. That's not the kind of woman here. Nor is she going to be a DU. A DU is not a biblical term. It's a term that I give to women that and men, for that matter, that are directors of the universe. She is not going to be the type of person controlling everything that anybody is trying to do, especially their husband. That type of person drives people crazy. And they have no credibility. This woman has credibility. Because her character is defined by strength and dignity. And I want you to notice, too, this is informal, not formal teaching. Notice it says, basically, whenever she opens her mouth. Women, may I remind you that you have enormous influence over children. And this is by God's design. You spend most of your time around them. Most of their early years are spent around you. And indeed, we know for a number of biblical reasons, women are not permitted to teach men in an official capacity within the church. We read that in 1 Timothy 2. But they do have a magnificent platform to teach children at home via your words, via your character. And might I also warn parents, parents be very, very careful who you allow to influence your children in daycares, with babysitters, with school teachers and so forth. Never underestimate the power of an ungodly woman or an ungodly man for that matter. Because I believe that for every hour you expose your child to the influence of the ungodly, it's going to take you about 10 hours to decontaminate them. You know, children pick up everything we do, everything we say, don't they? Especially the bad things, including our attitudes. And they will especially do this with people that are ungodly. Monkey see, monkey do. That's not a Bible verse, but there are others that say something very similar. Again, foolishness is bound up in their heart. Because foolishness is a part of them, they're going to naturally be predisposed to doing things that are foolish. Things that are ultimately sinful and dishonoring to God. There is a way that seems right to a man, but the end is death. There is pleasure in sin, but it's only for a season. Well, I know I hear people at times say, well, now, wait a minute. I mean, you know, we can't keep our kids from everybody. Well, I understand that. And then others will say, but, you know, some of the teachers, I mean, they're just teaching them soccer or piano or, or, or math or, or art or whatever. Friends, don't fool yourself. Because a person's worldview will manifest itself in how they look, how they dress, how they talk, the things they criticize, the things they laugh at, the things they applaud. In fact, very often, the greatest danger is not so much what is said, but what is not said. So you have to be very, very careful. But with this woman, my goodness, all that she does basically influences her children towards godliness. So she's a committed wife, a consummate homemaker, a compassionate philanthropist, a credible teacher because of her integrity. And then finally, she's a consecrated mother. Consecrated means she's blessed. She's set apart. She's a chosen and choice vessel of the Lord. Notice verse 27. 
She looks well to the ways of her household and does not eat the bread of idleness. Again, she's the queen of the house here. She's the the moral manager. She's the teacher, the administrator, the financial steward. And on it goes. And she is anything but idle. There's not a lazy bone in her body. And as a result, look what happens. Verse 28, her children rise up and bless her. And isn't that what we're doing even today? To bless means to honor, to praise, to reverence her. And ladies, can there possibly be any other reward that is as great as having your children bless you? Not only her children, it says her husband also, and he praises her, saying, verse 29, Many daughters have done nobly. But you excel them all. In my mind, can I ever echo that in my marriage? And many of you can as well. What a blessing it is to have a godly wife. And isn't that the goal of marriage? The goal of oneness. Can I put it real practically here, folks? There's not going to be any divorce in this family. There's not going to be any knock-down, drag-out fights in this family. And this mother is saying to Lemuel, Lemuel, if you will marry this kind of woman, this will be her future reward and your future reward. And notice the final summary in verse 30. She says to him, and he reminds us of what she said, charm is deceitful. And beauty is vain. But a woman who fears the Lord, she shall be praised. Said simply, a virtuous woman is one who fears the Lord. The word charm in Hebrew means gracefulness of form, primarily physically. This is a reference to the shape of her body and how she carries herself. And then beauty refers to features of the face. And what he's saying here is look beyond her figure, look beyond her face. Look at what is inside. The outside can be deceitful. It can be vain. But look primarily for this. Does she fear the Lord? And if so, verse 31, give her the product of her hands and let her works praise her in the gates. In other words, dear friends, here is the lasting legacy of her true beauty. She is going to reap the blessings that she has sown. All the seeds of her sacrifice are ultimately going to yield a glorious harvest of praise. Not only from her children and her husband and all who know her, but also from the Lord himself. Well, may this be an encouragement to all of you women and to all of us as men. To love our wives in such a way as to help them ascend to this incredible standard that, frankly, none of the women could possibly live up to completely any more than we could live up, men, to that which God has called us to do, to love our wives as Christ loved the church. But may we all take heed to what we've heard this morning and endeavor to live consistently with God's standard that we might experience great joy 
and that he might experience great glory. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you for these eternal truths and we pray that by the power of your spirit, we will be able to live them out, especially these dear women. And Lord, we thank you for them because they are indeed such a testimony to your grace and your goodness in our lives. And Lord, we pray that you will cause them to become even more conformed to the image of the Lord Jesus Christ and thus glorify you with the virtues of a godly woman and also enjoy all of the blessings that come to those who are obedient to that end. We pray all of this in the precious name of Jesus. Amen. We pray you've been edified by this presentation. You've been listening to pastor, Bible teacher, and author David Harrell. For more information or to order additional tapes or CDs of Pastor Harold's messages, please visit olivetreeresources.org.